You are listening to the podcast from Mosaic Church. Stay tuned after it for more info about how to get and stay connected with our church family. Now, let's dive into this week's message. Yeah, all right. Wonderful to be here back with you, everybody online, in the room. A couple things as we get going. First of all, just want to honor and recognize everybody involved with 40 Hour Elevate. Uh, This is our signature kick the year off event for middle school and high school students. Some of you had a day, parents, by yourselves yesterday. You didn't kind of know what to do with it, and you're welcome for that. But we had more than 100 students participate. This is our largest one by far we've ever done. Thank you, Pastor Wendell, uh, Philip, uh, Michaela, uh, all of our team members, those who gave rides host homes, thank you. I know your, your house may never be the same, uh, but neither will the kids, and that's what matters most. Thanks for all second who, uh, who were here and who fasted this past week, participated in our week of prayer and fasting, came on Friday night. By all estimates, we had the most people we've ever had participate in a prayer, lo- uh, prayer meeting this week during the same thing we do every year. So thank you for that. It was a powerful and meaningful week. And yes, finally, MLK weekend. We want to take a moment and pause and honor and give thanks for the life and the legacy of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Amen. All right, uh, let's get into our time in God's Word. We're in a series, as you can see, called Miracles. We're doing this along with our Every Nation family, hundreds of churches all over the world. Uh, We're looking at four, this month, four of the seven miracles or signs that the gospel writer John includes in his book. Our scripture reading is from John 5. Here we go. Sometime later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish festivals. Now there is in Jerusalem, near the Sheep Gate, a pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethesda, and which is surrounded by five covered colonnades. Here, a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, the paralyzed. From time to time, an angel of the Lord would come down and stir up the waters. The first one into the pool after each such disturbance would be cured of whatever disease they had. And one who was there had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he had been in this condition for a long time, he asked him, do you want to get well? Sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. While I'm trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. Then Jesus said to him, get up, pick up your mat and walk. And once the man was cured, he picked up his mat and walked. The day on which this took place was a Sabbath, and so the Jewish leaders said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath. The law forbids you to carry your mat. But he replied, the man who made me well said to me, pick up your mat and walk. So they asked him, who is this fellow who told you to pick it up and walk? The man who was healed had no idea who it was, for Jesus had slipped away into the crowd that was there. Later, Jesus found him at the temple and said to him, See, you are well again. Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jewish leaders that it was Jesus who had made him well. So, because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jewish leaders began to persecute him. In his defense, Jesus said to them, My father is always at his work to this very day, and I too am working. For this reason, they tried all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. That's the reading of God's amazing, eternal, timeless word, all his people said, 
Amen. Yeah. Uh, one of the most commonly used storytelling devices. And you see this in books, in TV shows, and movies all the time, is to begin the show or the book or the movie by showing you the ending of the movie, of the book, of the TV show. Like uh, the writer or director flashes forward to the very end of the story, shows you that first, that takes you back to the beginning, and rewinds again to show you how you got from there to here to all the way back again. And this device, storytelling device, is used in all kinds of movies, and this is just a short list. You may have seen one or more of these. Slumdog Millionaire, Saving Private Ryan, Gandhi, Pan's Labyrinth, Mission Impossible 3, Into the Wild, Amadeus, Crash, Forrest Gump, another at least dozen science fiction movies, and what a lot of folks have considered the greatest movie ever made, Citizen Kane. True confession, never seen that last one, heard it's great. <laughs> Same idea, but different stories. But why do storytellers do this? Well, mostly it's because it helps create the very best thing any story can ever have, which is tension. Tension. It creates tension by forcing you to ask, how did we get from there to there to there back again? So I want to try to do the same thing today, right now. I want to begin today with the end of John's gospel in view. Begin today with the last words of the whole book, which are these. Last words of John, chapter 20. Jesus performed many. Would you say many? other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written, say these are written, that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Say life in his name. That's it. John out, gospel over. In other words, at the very end of his book, John puts all his cards on the table and tells you that he had three specific goals in mind as he wrote all along. And if you wanted to, which we do, you could go back, rewind, and watch them at work all along the way. So let's do that today. Let's apply John's stated goals to this message. Let's turn John's specific goals into questions. Ask them and see what answers they yield. Three questions today. Number one, what is this specific sign? Again, not all the signs are recorded. This one's here. Why? Number two, what does believing in Jesus look like? And finally, how does new life in Jesus happen? That's what John says he wants for all of us. How does that happen? We're going to try to see. So with all that in mind, you ready? Yes. Let's begin here with number one and ask, what is this specific sign? And what I'd like to focus on in this question is specifically where this sign happens. Because where this sign happens means a lot for us right here, right now, today. And here's what I mean. Over the last couple of centuries, it's become popular, you may know this, to take up various points of the Bible and hold them up as either scientifically or archaeologically inaccurate and then use those points made to try to discredit the Bible, the New Testament, and the person of Jesus. And you should know that this passage in particular has been used in such a way, was used in such a way for a long time, and here's how. It's because John describes a very specific pool in Jerusalem. He wrote, now there is in Jerusalem near the sheep gate, a pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethesda, and which is surrounded, here it is, by five 
covered colonnades. And he not only gives you the location and some details about it, he also gives you the legend about it. He said from time to time an angel of the Lord would stir up the waters and folks who got in were healed. Now, most commentators don't believe that John of the Bible is actually teaching this, but John's only noting a legend that perhaps was based on fact or that some kind of healing, yes, happened to one person one time. Regardless, the point is, here John states there was a pool with five colonnades, or literally porches. Now, in the late 18th, 19th centuries, when those criticisms were being leveled, critics looked at this passage and said, aha, this must be made up. There is no evidence of this pool having ever existed. And not only is there no record of it, but who builds a five-sided pool? Porches in that day were only built on the one side of the pool or on a side of the pool. So five porches means five sides, and no one in that day ever built pentagonal pools. So this chapter, for a long time, was one more piece of evidence used in the academic case against the reliability of the Bible. People said, John certainly couldn't have written this. No eyewitness could have written this. This was all just made up much, much later by someone who wasn't even there. There it is. Case closed. Can't trust the Bible. And then two things happened which changed everything. Number one, in the late 19th century, guess what? A German archaeologist, your favorite German archaeologist and mine, by the way, Conrad Schick, discovered the pool. Thank you for that chuckle there, Master Jack. Oh, irony there, folks in the room. It had, the pool actually had been in Jerusalem all along, all these years, but a Christian church had been built on top of it to mark the miracle. Then the pool had become hidden, then lost from view. And second, after the pool was found, it was excavated, and Schick discovered that it was actually one pool with two sides split by a ridge of rock running down the middle. And in the middle was a fifth porch that had been built in addition to the other four around the four other sides. And now you know why John takes great pains to mention there were five porches because what kind of a pool had five porches? Oh, only one. Only one. And it took an eyewitness like John to know this. Can you see now the irony here? That the very passage that for years was held up and used to cast doubt on the reliability of the New Testament is now something that undergirds the reliability of the New Testament and the person of Jesus. You say, that's really interesting. Morgan, thank you for the BBC PBS lesson. Right. Why does this all matter? Here's why it matters. Because many skeptics, perhaps this is you, think of Christianity as just another religion, as Jesus is just a nice teacher, as just a good person, and that the point of the Christian faith is to be like all other religions, which is to provide certainty in the face of great uncertainty at points like birth, childbearing, death perhaps, and to show ways for us to live morally and courageously in the face of our fears. And so if Jesus then is just a nice teacher, if he's just a good person, then it doesn't really matter if he really lived or not. It, like, just like it doesn't matter if Socrates really lived or not or if Confucius actually lived or not because they're just teachers. And the important point is to follow their teaching, if you want to, and to live a good life, if you can. The point of any religion is just to help us be good, which means this implicitly, that God, if there is one, just only loves the good people, the worthy people, 
and mostly when they're being good and worthy. God, if there is one, only loves, only heals, only blesses the ones who make the pilgrimage, keep the commandments, do the sacrifices, except there's only one massive problem with that whole perspective on lumping the Christian faith in with every other faith system, which is this. Jesus explicitly said the opposite, Luke 5, 32. He said, I have not come to call the righteous. I came to call sinners to repentance. Jesus says over and over, I'm not here for the worthy I'm here for the unworthy. I'm not here for the good. I'm here for those who know they're not. And of course, you know this if you know your Bible. Paul the Apostle picks up this theme over and over, especially in Romans, and says, God justifies, that means he saves, ready? The super awesome person with exceptionally low body fat. Oh, wait. He didn't write that, did he? No, 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 sorry. The Paul said, God saves. Those who vote the right way in the right states. Oh, wait, no, he didn't say that. You know, no, God saves the A-list, it girl, TikTok influencer who's super awesome and got it going. Wait, no, he didn't say that either. God justifies the ungodly. And how does God do that? And hear me now. This is where all of this, I hope, comes together. It's through the true life, the real death, the literal resurrection of the factual person of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. And therefore, if the New Testament in specific is not true, as modern skeptics say, or if he never died on a Roman cross, as Muslim skeptics say, or if he was never bodily resurrected, as Jewish skeptics say, then you cannot be saved by him because it never really happened. Therefore, there's no redemption. There's no hope for the future and therefore now no hope in this life. You say, Morgan, I beg to differ. I disagree. I've got hope in this life. I don't need to believe in some like sky fairy God who I can't even see anyway. But I want to tell you, while you may not believe, you don't have hope. Sorry, you don't, respectfully. You don't have hope, not if your origins are meaningless. Not if your future is meaningless. If God's involved nowhere at the beginning or at the end, how can the middle matter? How can the middle be meaningful? There's no hope. There's only the now. And when a culture has only the now, do you know what it therefore has to produce? It has to produce people like us. A culture where you must be always awesome now, in power now, be beautiful now, always look young now, be personally liberated with a personally, you know, perfectly curated Instagram reel. And if you're not, you've got to work harder to save yourself through those things, either at the cost of your own soul or the cost of someone else's. You've got to save yourself through those things. You can't enjoy them for what they are. They must be salvific, see? And all of that is exhausting and debilitating and brings out the worst in a culture and a people. But if the Bible is true, which it is, and this story really happened, which it did, in this place, at this pool, at this time, then this specific sign and the specific place helps you believe that Jesus really lived, really healed this man, and has really come to bring life in his name to hurting people. And I want to tell you, you can have that right here, right now, today. Number one, that's why this specific sign matters to us. Number two, all right, what does then believing in Jesus look like? 
This is the sign. That's why it's there in part. What does believing in Jesus look like? Okay, here we go. If number one was more for folks who may be struggling with Christianity in general, this number two is more for the church folk in the house today. For the church of Jesus, which in some ways is struggling in its own way right now with something in the world right now, which is this. I think the church across the board is struggling with what does it look like right now in our mostly, hopefully, somewhat post-pandemic world to believe in Jesus? What ought the church to be like, look like, do like? What does it mean to follow him after lockdowns and protests and max and vaccines and George Floyd and January 6th and all the, the hard stuff we don't like to remember or think about or talk about? What should, here's my question, Christian life and ministry look like? What does believing in Jesus look like? Because of these miracles, John shows us are signs that they point us to what true ministry ought to be like, I think we can begin by asking this question. What does Jesus care about with this man at this pool? Or put it like this, does Jesus care about helping this man's body or saving this man's soul? Which one? Yeah, someone's like, uh, well, I think it's his A or B. It's a trick question. Thank you very much. It's a didactic teaching, you know, trick designed to get you to engage with the message. No, it's, it's both. It's yes, he cares about both. And we try to unpack it like this. On one hand, when you look across our nation, liberal and progressive churches will say that what God really cares about is just loving our neighbor. It's the love bit, which means at the bottom, if we're honest, it means never speaking about sin, never speaking about moral truth or absolutes, unless we're tearing down moral absolutes and creating a new moral absolute of having no absolutes, which of course itself is a moral absolute, but we don't consider the irony of that at any point, do we? No. But to speak of sin, to talk about saving souls, Converting people, that's out. And complete affirmation of every choice is in. More you know, progressive or liberal churches say, talking to people about sin, that's super judgy. Oh, but look at what Jesus says to this man after he heals him. See, you are well again. Stop sinning. <laughs> or something worse may happen to you. Oh God, what could be worse than like living, being an invalid for 38 years? Woo! Does your Jesus ever speak to you like this? You speak to your friend like this? Your life like this? If he doesn't speak to you like this, it may not be Jesus. Listen, this passage, it doesn't show you the hipster Jesus who sits around sipping soy lattes, whose legs aren't going to fit into a 10-year-old skinny jeans. You know what I'm saying? The point is, and then look, before he heals him, he straight up asks the man, do you want to get well? Not super sensitive, inclusive language here. Listen, in a liberal progressive church, this is not what ministry looks like. But on the other hand, and at the same time, Jesus doesn't just drop a truth bomb on him. No. What does he also do? He cares for this man's body. He heals him. And in particular, he heals a person who does not appear to deserve it. Not only is this man apparently, habitually, sinning somehow, not only does he not have any faith of any kind, he's only got like a low-level superstition in a magic pool. He never asked Jesus' name, and when Jesus does heal him, the guy turns him over to the authorities. It was him, you know. 
did this guy deserve this in any way? No. And listen, in traditional, moralistic, more conservative churches, help's only given to the people who deserve it, who have earned it, who don't break the rules, nice, squeaky clean. And if there is any help to be given to people in situations like that, it's by telling them to ship up or shape out or whatever the metaphor is, get your act together. Right. But how does Jesus minister here? In word and deed with sacrificial compassion for people in poverty and broken. And yes, with honest truth, the man's body was broken and his soul was warped by sin. He needed not just to be healed, but as Jesus put it, to be made well, well, inside and out, soul saved, body healed, back in community. Tell you a story, I think brings this whole idea to life. Many years ago, a man by the name of Langdon Gilkey, he wrote a fascinating book post-World War II called Shantung Compound, the story of men and women under pressure. And Langdon Gilkey was actually a professor, Dr. Gilkey, went to China, who went to China to teach around the beginning of World War II. And when his village in China was taken captive by the Japanese. Gilkey, along with lots of other people, was put into an internment camp. And all the people had who lived there, all the, all the space they had for all their worldly possessions was like a three-foot area at the bottom of their cot. And the, the, these folks packed in 2,000 people into the space of one floor of a city block. It was a difficult place just to survive. And Gilkey said when he got there, Although he had a level of church upbringing way in his past, by the time he got to the camp, he was essentially a secular person who believed that religion was for only those who thought they needed it. He did not believe that faith in God was necessary for a culture or a society because he believed that most people, deep down at their core, were rational, fair, and morally good. And then he got into the camp, and his book talks all about during the, how, during the three years he was there, he became utterly disillusioned. With humanity. He wrote about how he saw the worst of humanity there and over and over described the cruelty and the theft and the selfishness from all the people who lived this all out repeatedly. And he said it made no difference who was there. Religious people, not religious people, both alike were equally selfish and wicked. Everyone was out for themselves. But he said sometimes the religious people, this is convicting, were the worst. The worst because they had airtight excuses point of the Bible for why they were able to live how they lived and point their nose, look down their nose at others. But he said he began to realize that, oh, people are not inherently good, but inherently sinful. At their core, people needed change. And so right in the middle of his disillusionment with both secularism and religion, he said something stood out to him that changed everything. He said there was one ray of light that illumined the camp and his own dark heart. And that ray of light in the middle of the POW camp was a man named Eric Little. Eric Little. Little, of course, was famous for winning the gold medal of the 1924 Olympic Games, not in his best race, the 100, but in a far worse race, the 400, because he refused to race on the Sabbath. And maybe you've seen the movie about that story called Chariots of Fire, another movie which also begins with the ending and works its way back. But Langdon Gilkey wrote that it would be hard to overestimate the impact that Little had on him and the other prisoners. And he wrote this. He said, quote, it's rare indeed when a person has the good fortune to meet a saint. But Eric came as close as anyone I've ever known to being one. Everybody struggled with anger, despair, and selfish behavior. And actually, the missionaries were almost worse than the rest. But Eric was always overflowing with good humor and joy, had a love of life. 
He was constantly pouring himself out for the pinned-up teenagers in the camp. He ran chess tournaments. He built model boats. He led square dancing. And he cooked them modest meals when he could. We scarcely could have survived without him. And Langton Gilkey tried to figure out what made Eric Little different. And finally, he understood something that pushed him away from being a secular, skeptical person and prevented him from becoming a prideful, religious person, which was this. He understood that Eric Little had had a transformation because of the grace and the mercy of Jesus Christ. He heard from Eric's mouth truth and saw through Eric's hands compassion. So what happened to Eric Little? Well, Eric Little died of a brain tumor in the camp just before it was liberated. What happened to Langdon Gilkey? Well, Langdon survived the camp, came to faith in Jesus, and became a prolific writer and Christian educator in the 20th century. The point is, in a way, Eric died so that Langdon, Langdon could come and find new life. Eric ministered, word, deed, gave his life that someone else could find new life in Jesus' name. How can we get that same new life for ourselves? Remember, that's why John's writing. Number three, how does this new life, how does this new life in Jesus happen? I want to take you through three steps quickly. Three steps. This sign shows us step number one. Here it is. We must see that Jesus comes to us first. We don't come to Jesus first. Because look at this man. He does not come to Jesus. It says Jesus found him. Jesus comes to him. The, the man born blind. We'll look at it next week. He does not come to Jesus. Jesus comes to him. Lazarus, because he's dead, does not come to Jesus. But Jesus comes to him. Even at the end of the book, Mary can't recognize the risen Christ without her eyes being open. Why? It's because John's trying to show you that's a picture of the human soul. When the Bible writes, no one seeks God, people don't like it because they think that can't be true. Look at me, Morgan. I came to church today. Man, I schlepped my four kids up here in a minivan. Changed my clothes, right? Got up early. Good gracious. I mean, look at me. I'm in like a grow class. How can I not be seeking God? Or you may ask, well, what about all those people who walked up to Jesus and found him teaching? But think about it. They could only find him because he came here in the first place. If we were, the point is, smart enough or good enough to find him first, that wouldn't be grace. That wouldn't be mercy, which, by the way, is the name of the place where this sign takes place. It takes place in Bethesda, which means house of mercy. Step number one, Jesus comes to the house of mercy to find you because he loves you. Step number two, we must believe we need God's salvation, not just his help. Look at this. When Jesus asked the man, do you want to get well? The man responds with, sir, I've got no one to help me get into the pool. While I'm trying to get in, someone gets in ahead of me. Here's what the man's doing. He's thinking, my salvation is the pool. If I can just get into the pool there, I'll be fine. I need the pool. I must have the pool. All other concerns are secondary. And then look what he does to Jesus. He turns Jesus into just an object, like a crutch or an assistant. Jesus is only someone to help him get what he thinks he really wants all along. The man, understandably, of course, wanted a new body, but Jesus came to give him new life. And this, of course, through this man, this is what the human heart does. It has something it thinks will save it. It's happy to 
pray a prayer that brings Jesus into its orbit. Jesus, help me get that promotion. Jesus, help me marry that person. Jesus, help me to be the next famous person, pastor, influencer, TikToker, platformer, athlete, whatever. I need you to help me get into this pool. I need you to help me get the water. Oh, but here's the irony. The man was looking for water, but water came looking for him. Jesus himself said, I am living water, and I've come to give to you what you could never get on your own. Jesus heals this man and never even touches the water. Why? Because he is living water. He was the pool come to life. He's the legend of the pool come true. Standing before the man was his salvation, and he needed Jesus's salvation, not just his help. Stage number three. Step three, we must then respond and go. Listen, you become a Christian when you simply say, God, I'm like that crippled person right there lying by the pool. I'm broken apart from you, and I always come looking for something else to save me, but only you can. And you respond then, like this man did in this moment. You pick up your mat, and you go. This man didn't just stare at Jesus and say, that's a real nice three-point sermon, well articulated, by the way, with the poem coming at the end, I want to let you know. No, he responded in faith to the word of God. He got up and his healing came as he went. And for the Christian person, this also shows us we don't just encounter the grace of God once upon a time. No, we keep coming back because our heart always wants to go back, does it not, to some stupid, stinking cesspool of whatever we think will save us. Now, we can begin with the gospel. We can forget what brings us this far. So I want to tell you, whatever pool you've been looking at today, looking into today, thinking it'll be your rescue ticket, it's blinded you to the one who's standing in front of you today. Today's your day. You can be free. This is why John wrote. He wrote down this sign so we could believe in Jesus and find life in his name. As the hymn writer put it, hear him, ye deaf. His praise, ye dumb, your loosened tongues employ. Ye blind, behold, your Savior come. And leap, ye lame, for joy. Take a moment and pray, and Pastor Corey's going to come. Oh, Father God, we come in your name today. Lord, I'm praying for us today. For some of us, we may find, for the first time, new life in your name. Lord, I pray above and beyond, and even despite something I've said or someone said today, you would emerge and break through and show up like you did at that pool that day and bring the healing, the salvation, and the breakthrough. I pray these things in your name. Amen. Pastor Corey, would you come? Thanks for listening. For more info about how to get and stay connected to Mosaic Church, please visit us online at www.mosaicchurchaustin.com or download our app from your app store.